family. It means a lot of things. For many of us, it's our people, our kin. It's the husband and the wife, the mom and the dad who raise sons and daughters, who develop and grow up those sisters and brothers. It's the aunt and the uncle, grandma and grandpa. Even the crazy cousins who are more like great friends. When we think about family, we think about people like these. But that's probably not all that comes to mind when you think about family. For some of us, family is a lot more than just blood. For some of you, when I say family, all you can think about is your very best friend. Someone who has chosen you. Picked you. And offers you as much encouragement, kindness, and love as any blood relative ever could. We're truly blessed by those friends who act like family. When we think about family, we think about the emotional connections we have with those we love. I mean, family is where we should feel protection. Family is where we should get what we need, where our dreams are cultivated, where we feel most at home. Family is where we can be our real selves. Family is that which should build us up, should complement our strengths, should support us in our weaknesses, dry our tears when we're sad, laugh with us when we're happy, care for us during the tough times, and celebrate our moments of joy. Family is what we lean on for help. Family is where we get our values and where we get our name. But make no mistake, family is hard. Just because we expect a family to display caring and gratitude for one another doesn't mean that it actually happens. Because every family is made up of imperfect people. The good family that we thought would stay together always sometimes doesn't. Struggles, heartaches, and sins cause divisions. Families can be easily broken. And some of us, when we think about families, we think about families that fit a different mold. Some of us have foster families. Some of us come from blended families. Some of us from families into which we've been adopted. 
But there's another kind of family. Perhaps one that you and I wouldn't immediately think about. The divine, eternal, heavenly family of God. A forever community of three in one. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. They lived in perfect harmony from infinity, and yet in an act of providential kindness, reached out to all of us. God the Son, Jesus, came into the world to die for our sins, to rise from the dead, calling all who believe on him into a new family, a family that he calls the church. And what does this family provide? How about peace in a world that is full of upheaval and darkness and evil? How about hope that our sins are forgiven and that death doesn't have the final say? How about having a family that will know you inside and out and serve you in truth and in love? How about the joy of knowing that you are welcome in the very family of God? family. No matter how you think about it, it's a complicated yet beautiful thing for which we can all be thankful. Because even though family is messy, it is a truly amazing And in this family, anyone can belong because everyone is loved by God. Family means a lot of things. And the impact of family on each and every one of us, whether for good or for ill, is immense. God declared a truth about the human condition when he looked at the first man, Adam. A man that he had placed in the Garden of Eden, a virtual heaven on earth. And yet, he said, it is not good. For the man to be alone, it's not good. There's something about us, you and me, something created and designed into us that yearns for relationship, for connection, for family. We have an inner drive to be a part of, to be a member of, to belong to others. To be a part of a group, a player on a team, a member of a family, to belong. 
There's something about knowing that other people are thinking, you're one of us. To know that you're accepted, that you have a place, that you are in some way approved. And when that sense of connection, that relationship is lacking, the consequences can be devastating. This has been borne out in the effects on babies who have been deprived of human touch and connection. In many cases, they grow up relationally stunted, unable to form healthy bonds with others later in life. Their ability to empathize with another person's pain or hurt is somehow blunted by those early infancy experiences of no connection. You know, years ago, I visited Alcatraz, the notorious maximum security prison that's located on an island in San Francisco Bay. And one of the most chilling aspects of the tour was the solitary confinement cell. I didn't realize, but at at Alcatraz, they allowed no light in that cell. None. It was pitch black. So you couldn't occupy your mind by reading or anything else. You were left totally alone with your thoughts. There's no human contact except the hand that you would see sliding food through the slot in the door three times a day. Prolonged stays in what they called the hole drove some inmates stark raving mad. It's no wonder we weren't meant to be alone like that. Some of the most emotional cases that I handled as a lawyer weren't the murders or the manslaughters. They were the cases that involved children raised in families that were plagued by abuse or neglect or addiction. For many of these children, regardless of how horrible it may have been, this was their family. It was all they knew. They didn't know family any other way. It was, for them, normal. And when they were removed from that situation, the loss to these kids was heartbreaking. Even if they were old enough to know that there was something wrong, that this, the situation they were in was not right, they still grieved the loss of connection, of relationship, of family. And they would struggle with that question, where do I belong? You know, when you think about it, This innate desire to belong is part of what drives disaffected people to join gangs or cults or extremist groups. They long to belong, to be a part of, to have a sense that they have a family in some way, shape, or form. To be a part of a group that has some interest in them, that cares about them. But where does this desire for community, this drive for connection, come from? 
What is it that, that compels us to relate, to do what we have to do to create some sense of family? You know, I think we all know that it's, it's right, that, that when it's right and, and it's good and it's healthy, family is one of the greatest blessings that you'll ever receive. And no, no family is perfect. Because every family is made up of flawed and sinful human beings. Each family has its issues. But when there's love and there's acceptance and is as often necessary forgiveness, few things in life can bring more joy or fulfillment or peace. And there's both a sense of identity and a comfort in knowing that you have your people. That sense of identity also entails some expectations. This is how this family conducts itself. This is who we are. This is how we behave. You know, I remember when I was young, my my grandpa Lyle always seemed kind of larger than life to me. I always knew that when he spoke, number one, I'd better listen. And number two, I'd better act on what I'd heard sooner rather than later. As a kid, he, he, he struck me as a, bit, as a bit gruff. That is until I started dating Cheryl. She seemed to bring out Grandpa's softer side. In fact, I remember walking into a room one day, and, and there they were sitting, sitting off, off to the side, just the two of them talking, and he was holding my girlfriend's hand. I remember thinking, she doesn't let me do that that often. How'd you do that? Uh, anyway. But I remember a time when one of his grandsons, unfortunately it was not me, but one of his grandsons got in some trouble with the law. And this grandson told me this years later, it was actually just right after Grandpa's funeral, that when he was released from jail, Grandpa had a talk with him. And Grandpa let him know that he still loved him. There was love, there was acceptance, there was forgiveness. But Grandpa always also wanted him to know, you're a Lyle. Don't you ever forget it. Everywhere you go and everything you do carries our name with it. And that is not who we are. You know, family, when it's right, can provide a positive identity and God-honoring expectations. And friends, our theme word for 2020 is this word family. And for years, we've referred to this church as the G&G family. And and that's what it really should be, a healthy, caring, God-honoring family. A group of people in which we are loved and accepted and known where people are thinking, you, 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 you're one of us. 
And this year we felt the need to really kind of drill down on what it means to be a part of the family of God. To be a member of a group of people who are bound together by a common faith. A family where love and acceptance and forgiveness should, if it's working right, be the order of the day. A family that has its arms wide open to new people who want to come and learn about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A family that has a family name, Christian. And there are expectations that go with that name. Not perfect by any means, because none of us are. But doing our best to create an environment in which people have a sense that they belong. If you weren't able to be here last week, you may want to stop by the Welcome Center and pick up one of the lesson series brochures, which gives you a schedule of all the lessons that are going to be going on this year and also important events throughout the year. We handed those out last week during the service. And to kick off our 2020 theme word, we're going to begin this morning by defining that word family. It's there in the box at the top of your outline. If you'll pull that out right now, if it's your first time with us, it's a white sheet with holes punched on the side. But at the top of the outline is a box there. It has the word family in bold print at the top. And family is defined like this. And I really just pulled this out of the dictionary I have at home. And it goes like this. Any group of persons closely related by blood. It's the first definition. Blood relatives are in your family tree. They're biologically related. But it goes on, all those people, all those persons considered as descendants of a common ancestor. You know, you think about all those commercials you see on TV about Ancestry.com and how they try to trace your lineage back several generations as far as they possibly can. It's that idea of people who are considered descendants of a common ancestor. Now the third definition is perhaps... a a bit more modern due in part probably to the prevalence in our culture of the shift away from the traditional nuclear family. Because the third definition of a family was a group of persons who form a household. Not necessarily blood relatives or descendants of a common ancestor, but people who have joined together to just be a part of a household and and they've, they've chosen to act as a family. Now, our focus verse for this lesson series comes from Ephesians 2.19. It's words written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a town called Ephesus. It's up here on your screens, or you can read it off the top of your outline, but let's all recite it together. Here we go. You are a member of God's very own family, and you belong in God's household with every other Christian. Now, I want you to take a real close look on your outline because we're going to go back through that verse and we are going to look at it word for word, okay? Notice that it says you. Circle that word. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to a church, just like Good News Gathering. And he says you, you Christians, 
People who have accepted Christ. That's you and that's me. If you've accepted Christ and what he did for you on the cross when he shed his blood for our sins. He said you are a member. Circle that word. In other words, you are a part of. You belong. You are a member of. And then circle the word God's. This is important. He says, this is God's, the almighty creator of the universe. You are a member of God's, and then circle these three words, very own family. In other words, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you become a member of God's very own family. You're his people. You're his kin. You're his creation. You are a member of God's very own family, and you are. Circle that word, belong. You belong. You belong. You're a part of. You're included. You belong where? It says in God's, circle this word, household. Household. What is the household of God? It's the church. It's the family of God. And he says, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you become a member of God's very own family, and you belong in his household. With who? It says, with every other Christian. Circle those three words. You belong in God's household with every other Christian. And that's a reference that works on two levels. First, it's a universal reference. In other words, all Christians who have ever lived in the past, in the present, or will live in the future, you belong with them. You're a part of the family of God and not just the universal, all-encompassing church, but also this particular church. Whether it's in Ephesus or it's in Hillsboro, Ohio, you belong. You belong. And not only do you and I belong in God's household with every other Christian, but we are members of God's very own family in part because we were created to belong. We were created to belong. What is it within us that drives us to connect, to relate, to create a family? Why do you and I have this sense of need to belong? I believe the reason, friends, goes all the way back to creation. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, As we embark upon a new year, and as we look at 2020, Father, it's my hope and prayer that we would truly discover what it means to be the family of God, that we would create an environment at Good News Gathering where people feel a sense that they are a part of. They're a member of. They belong. Father, help this church to become the family you have called it to be. And may our arms always be open wide 
to welcome new members of your family. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, friends, I ask that question, what is it that drives us to connect, to relate to others, to long to belong? And if you notice there on your outline, you see that phrase, I am meant to belong because. And I want you to understand that, that I chose that word meant very carefully. I am meant to belong. And the reason I chose the word meant is because the word meant implies intentionality. It implies design. It implies purpose. Think of it like when you say, I'm meant to do that. Or I'm meant to do this. Okay, that's an intentional act. You thought about it. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't an accident. It was intentional. And friends, I believe that you and I are meant to belong. And to connect with others. First of all, because you and I were created by a relational God. We were created by a relational God. Christians believe that there is one God and only one God. And the Bible is very clear on this. Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Okay? There is only one. There aren't many gods. There is one God. In fact, Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, circle this word, one Okay? There is one God. And yet, the Bible is equally clear that God is in some mysterious way three in one. That all there are three persons of the Godhead. Christians refer to this as the Trinity. And all three were involved in creation. The very first verse of the Bible tells us this. It says, in the beginning, God, circle that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God the Father created the heavens and the earth. But the Bible is also very clear that God the Son was also engaged in the creative process. Notice what it says in the book of Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, when it says the Son is the image of the invisible God, it's referring here to, to Jesus. And, and as this image of the invisible God, this is God in the flesh. The image of God that human beings could see and touch and hear. The perfect image or likeness of God. The exact representation of God on earth. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that word firstborn means that he has preeminence over all. Why? Because he, cre- he existed before creation and he created all things. But it goes on to say this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Notice it says, all things have been created through him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's not only the creator, but when it says, in him all things hold together, it's, it's saying that he is the sustainer. In other words, you and I not only were created by God, but the Son sustains us in existence moment by moment. It's like if somebody ever asked you, what if there was no God? Well, according to the Bible, if there was no God, there would be nothing else. Okay? If all of a sudden God ceased to exist, you and I would be gone. So God the Father and God the Son were clearly involved in creation, and so was God the Holy Spirit. In the second verse of the Bible, we see the Holy Spirit actively involved in creation. So you have God in the very first verse In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in the second verse, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in the very second verse of the Bible, we see the Holy Spirit actively involved at creation. In fact, the book of Job, which is believed to be one of the oldest books of the Bible, says this. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So all three persons of the Trinity were actively engaged in creation. And on the sixth day when God created human beings, the apex of his created world work, then it says this, God said, let us, circle the word us, Let us make mankind in our, circle that word, image, in our likeness. Circle that word again. Three times in this one verse, God reiterates that he is a plurality in oneness. You see, God is in relationship within himself. He's in relationship within himself. One God in three persons. Three persons in perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect love. Community in oneness. God is, as one writer put it, a social being within himself. Now this is a mystery to us. But it's interesting to me that creation itself, in fact, the very fabric of the universe, reflects the triune nature of God. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul makes what at first blush seems to be a very harsh statement. He wrote this. He said the wrath, or the word wrath simply means the perfect judgment of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So Paul's saying, 
that people can see in nature itself, in the created order, the eternal power and divine nature of God. And I have to admit, when I first read that passage years ago, I thought, man, that seems harsh. You mean you're telling me that all you've got to do is observe nature and you can get some sense that there is a God and, and some sense of what that God is like? And Paul is saying, yes, in fact, people are without excuse. It can be clearly seen. God has made it plain to them. And I'm thinking, how? What, what, what is he talking about? And friends, when you think about it, creation itself manifests the triune nature of God. It does. I don't know about you, but it's interesting to me that the entire physical universe, and that word universe, una means one, one world, one universe, consists, <laughs> interesting, we have a universe, but the universe consists of three, and only three aspects or elements. So we live in a universe, one world, but it's comprised of three elements. And if you were to take any one of these elements away, you would no longer have a universe. Isn't that fascinating? And even more interesting, each one of these three elements of our one universe consists of three elements, three in one. First, our universe is comprised of time. Time. And when you think of time, time is past, present, future. Three in one. Every one of us experiences these elements of time every single day of our lives. And you cannot separate them and have only one or two. You can't just have present and future but no past. Or past and present but no future. Past, present, and future are all aspects of time. And they're indivisible. Space. Space consists of length, width, and depth. Three in one. Take away any one of these dimensions and you no longer have space. The universe also consists, thirdly, of matter, which is energy, motion, substance. Again, three in one. Matter consists of energy in motion producing substance. Take away any one of these aspects and you no longer have matter. You see, the very fabric of our universe gives evidence of the relational nature of God. Is it any wonder the Apostle Paul says God has made it plain? People are without excuse. In fact, the psalmist says this in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them yet. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. It's there. 
there is a God. He created everything. And he's relational. And not only were you and I created by a relational God, but you and I were created for relationship with God. We were created for relationship with God. You see, incredible intimacy in the creation account. Notice what it says in Genesis 2. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and get this, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This was not something he rolled off a machine. It says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's almost as if God gave the very first man CPR. Think about that. He breathed into him. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, and in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God breathes into the first man the breath of life, and then he places him in a garden, a place of absolute perfection, but in the middle of that garden is a tree a tree that represents choice, a tree that indicates that man is free, free to choose to obey God or to disobey God. And you know something, friends? That tree is there for a reason. Because only in an environment of freedom and choice can you have true relationships. Only in an environment of freedom and choice can you have true love. You think about it. You can't make somebody love you. You can't force somebody to be in relationship with you. And God gave those human beings freedom so that they could have true relationship. There could be a relationship of love. The Bible goes on to say, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them and he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God blesses those human beings and gives them a purpose to be fruitful, to increase, to fill the earth. Now we know what the man and the woman did with the tree. They chose to disobey. And yet the Bible indicates that God reached out to them despite their disobedience. The Bible tells us then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? And friends, when you think about the Old Testament, that part of the Bible that comes before Jesus, throughout the Old Testament, God continues to call out to mankind, where are you? 
And he reaches out, them, out to them through the father of the faith. We know him as Abraham. He reaches out to them through Moses and the giving of the, the Ten Commandments. Where are you? This is how you should live. He reaches out to them through the prophets. And then God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world. And the Bible tells us in John 3, 16 through 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But notice what it goes on to say. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. But here's the reality. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You see, friends, through Christ, you and I can be in relationship with God. That's why he sent his son. Jesus took care of our sin problem so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty for our sins. That's why he came to the earth. Not to condemn, but to save. But we have to make the choice to believe. So friends, we were created by a relational God and we were created to be in relationship with God. God, and finally, you and I were created for relationship with others. We were created to be in relationship with others. You see this in the creation of the very first human being. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Think about this. God created human beings to be in relationship with one another and to help each other through life. To help each other through life. And unfortunately, because of sin in our world, we see that relationship has gotten warped and perverted. I look at our... I look at our news and I see in our world things that must break the heart of God. I see friction between the man and the woman. Gender issues that have gone on for as long as man has inhabited the earth. The ongoing battle of the sexes that must break his heart. This was not what he intended. I see racial tension that seems to be tearing our nation apart. And I think how that must break the heart of God. Because the Bible is clear. Genesis 3.20 says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living 
Now think about that, friends. All human beings, that's you, that's me, that's every human being that has ever lived, have a common, have common ancestors, Adam and Eve. So what does that mean? What that means is, biblically speaking, there are no different races. There is only one race, the human race. As if that weren't enough, the Bible even recounts the flood. And the Bible tells us that God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as if Adam and Eve were not enough, years later, after them, the only people on this earth were Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, eight in all. We all go back to common ancestors. But unfortunately, that's not the way we think quite often. And the truth of the matter, friends, is that unfortunately one of the most popular theories in modern science has contributed to that. Many of you are aware that Charles Darwin wrote his book, Origin of Species, in 1859. And for the last 160 years, that book has become one of the most influential books ever written in the Western world. What you may not know is the full title of that book, which was Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Now, Darwin wrote his book in 1859, he focused the attention of that particular book on the animal kingdom. But toward the end of the book, he made this very interesting comment. He said, in the distant future, I see open fields for far more important researches. Light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. Interestingly, It wasn't in the distant future. Darwin followed up with the book Descent of Man in 1871, 12 years later. And in that book, he wrote this. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of men will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Of course, savage races did not include Darwin's so-called race, quite European, Caucasians. Now, friends, let me be clear. Evolutionary theory is not the cause of racism. Sin 
is the cause of racism. But there is no question that evolutionary theory has aided in that over time. In a fascinating comment by Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, a guy who is not a Christian, and he is an evolutionist, but I respect this guy because he is at least clear-headed and truth-telling. He made this comment in one of his books. He said this, Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, the year Darwin's book was published. But they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. The litany is familiar. Cold, dispassionate, objective modern science shows us that races can be ranked on a scale of superiority. If this offends Christian morality or sentimental belief in human unity, so be it. Science must be free to proclaim unpleasant truths. But then he ends with this truth. But the data were useless. In other words, what he's saying is all all the data that scientists were using to try and show that certain races were more advanced than others and certain races deserved to live and others deserved to be exterminated, he said was useless. In fact, biologists today will tell you that there is only one race, the human race, just like the Bible said 2,000 years ago. You see, that's why when God calls us into a family, it is a family of a different kind. It's a family where our relationships with other people are not impacted by the world's view of humanity, but by a view that God has of us. And it goes like this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And look at what he says. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. In other words, when Paul spoke to these people, Jewish people in that day considered that they were only true groups of people in the world, Jews and non-Jews, which they called Gentiles. And the non-Jews were somehow less. Also, in that culture, there was a thriving slave trade. In Greek culture, women, and you can read this in Plato, women were not often considered to even have souls. And look at what Paul says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Get rid of that. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, through Christ You and I belong in God's family. And it's a totally different kind of family than what the world presents. 
It's a family that is bonded together by blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. All of us in this family are descendants of a common ancestor because we go right back to creation. We're descendants of Adam and Eve. And we're a group of people who form a household. This is us, a household of faith that we call Good News Gathering in a place where people hopefully belong. Now, friends, remember that we were created by a relational God. We were created to be in relationship with God. And we were created for relationship with other people. Now this morning, friends, I want to talk to you about just a couple of next steps that maybe you might want to take as you embark upon 2020. You have a connect card this morning. And in the middle box on the back of that connect card, if you're new, new to Good News Gathering, we have something coming up on January the 19th. It's called Picnic on the Patio. Don't worry, we won't actually be outside. Um, we'll, we'll do that inside. But at the Picnic on the Patio, if you've been attending Good News Gathering for six months or less, we feed you on that particular day right after second service. It's a time for you to meet the staff and the leadership team of this church, also to get some great food and to hear a real brief presentation about our church and and to get any questions you might have answered. And so we would encourage you to come to that if you've been attending Good News six months or less. And all you have to do is check that box on on your Connect card and let us know that you're coming so we have plenty of food prepared. But the second thing I would like to point out to you is on the back of your outline, there's a reference there to our 2020 Bible reading plans. And I would strongly encourage you to begin this year to read the Bible every single day. We have a number of different <coughs> excuse me, plans. Some of them are for the entire Bible, read through the entire Bible through the year. And some of them are just reading the New Testament through the year twice. Um, but one of, the, one of the apps that we have is the Read Scripture app, which is a really cool app because it has accompanying videos that give you an overview of every book of the Bible as you're reading it. So we'd encourage you to get on the website and look those things up, or if you prefer paper, we do have five different Bible reading versions out at the Welcome Center in the rack out there, and you can look through And pick which one you want and just take a copy of that. Remember, friends, that the church is to be a place where people belong. A family of faith united by the blood of Christ. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Time to look into your word. Time to learn about what it is that drives us to connect and to relate and to understand that that is simply a reflection of who you are. Three in one. 
a God of relationship. And so, Father, it's our open prayer that throughout this year, Good News Gathering will become the kind of church that is just that, a place where people connect with you and with others, a place where people can relate to you and with others, and a place where people can belong. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, Amen.